Hi, my name is Cindy, and today I'll be reading from John chapter 16, verses 7 to 13. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because of the ruler of this world has already been judged. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. Hello. If we've not met, my name is Rick, and I'm part of the teaching team here at Living Waters. Now, you'll notice in front of me I have something called a trackpad, and if you're wondering what my fingers are doing, they're enabling me to scroll through the text so I can actually maintain some eye contact with you. Today, we're continuing our series on the Spirit with a particular focus on how and why the Spirit bears witness to Jesus. We'll begin by recalling some of our earlier materials, and this is because they are truly foundational to what we'll look at today, and indeed, can I suggest, to our Christian life. Then, picking up on the earlier foot washing sessions, we're going to turn to John to see what Jesus himself has to say about the work of the Spirit in and for us, and again, especially in bearing witness to Jesus, which is the focus of our session. So to begin, you might recall in our essential series, we talked about the body, and in particular, that all humans, male and female, are made in the image of God. We spoke about how images were manufactured and how central to that process was their being indwelt by the fiery breath of the God, at which point the image became, for them, the physical manifestation of their God upon the earth. We then saw how Israel's unique Lord took up this language and in turning the entire ancient world on its head declared, you don't make an image of me, I made you in my image. Now, the implications here are profound. From the very beginning, God intended that we humans all of us, without distinction, male and female, should be the physical manifestation of his presence upon the earth. This is a breathtakingly high view of what it means to be human. Now, how this happens, how it is that we embody God's presence, is what leads directly into our current series. It is through the indwelling of God's life-giving and transforming spirit. And this runs all the way through scripture. It's what Moses hoped for way back in Numbers eleven twenty nine. The spirit had just come upon the 70 elders and they were prophesying and frantic Joshua protested, stop them, my Lord. Moses' wonderful response is, don't be jealous on my account. I would that all of God's people were prophets. Similarly too, Ezekiel's vision of the return from exile in chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. The Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, this is exactly what Galatians later describes. And as Luke so rightly pointed out, this is all God's initiative. He does this. It's not about our willpower, but rather the spirit who wars against our rebellious autonomy. And of course, famously in Joel chapter 2, cited in Acts chapter 2, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And this, of course, is the great good news of the gospel. Yes, Jesus dealt with our sins once and for all, and maybe on another occasion we can talk about this. I mean, what goes on in Jesus' death is simply staggering. However, and not to diminish this in any way, the huge shift in the New Testament concerns the Spirit. What Moses, Ezekiel, and Joel hoped for has now been fulfilled because of Jesus. His death opened the way for everyone who trusts in him to be filled with God's life-giving and transforming spirit. And you see, it's not just that our past is forgiven. Even more importantly, having been freed from that past, our future is made new. Not only can we know what God looks like, we are now able to imitate him. Through his spirit in us, we actually get to do it. Now, several interrelated points emerge, all of them critical to our understanding how and why the Spirit bears witness to Jesus. The first thing is the Spirit is all about reflecting God's character. It's why the Scriptures have so much to say about how we live, what we say, and what we do. Now, I remember some years ago at my first teaching post at an evangelical school, they were a little nervous about Pentecostals, perhaps rightly so. <laughs> Uh, but after I got to know them, one day the principal called me in and something had gone on and he said to me, Rick, um, I really don't understand what's going on. We've had some things to do with some local Pentecostals and, and you guys are all about the spirit. Why do you behave so unethically? Uh, that really set me back. But I think he was drawing attention to one of the dangers in our Pentecostal tradition. We can become so focused on power and mission and they're good that we forget that power and mission that do not reflect God's character will soon start looking like someone else. Hence Galatians, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all expressions of who Yahweh is and, of course, embodied most clearly in Jesus. You can tell when the Spirit is present in someone's life. They start to look and even shine like Jesus. Secondly, for this reason, life in the Spirit is absolutely essential to the Christian life. I think this was partly Dave's point in his opening session. A spiritless Christianity is in fact a contradiction in terms. But third, I think even more than this, it's not just about the Christian life. We hear about God's spirit long before we hear about Jesus. In fact, all the way back to the very beginning. Because image language is so intimately connected with the spirit, any talk about being human has to begin with centrality of God's indwelling spirit. Can you see that? 
Being Christian and being truly human are exactly the same thing, and both mean looking like Yahweh. Can I suggest this is where folks who talk about Christianity being a religion kind of completely miss the point. This is not something we believe privately at home. As the ancient Romans understood, the gospel was about a radically different way of understanding the entire cosmos and the place of humans within it. It could not be more comprehensive and hence more public and hence challenging to the status quo. Now, we'll come back to this when we get to the comforter's role in mission. So all this to say, don't be surprised if we frequently find ourselves on a collision course with our secularised, individualistic, do-our-own-thing culture. And this is because, as Luke pointed out, being human is never actually our own thing. If it's not the Spirit of God who's motivating us, then it's someone else whose origins go all the way back to the serpent who first inspired human rebellion. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are, all of us, serving somebody, as Bobby Dylan once famously sang. Finally, the third point then is we need to remember what fourth point, we need to keep in mind that being Christian is not primarily a matter of good versus evil. Even if many, even if many of us think in these terms, it's not where Scripture starts. And we of all people are meant to be formed by Scripture. Scripture starts with creation, in which case we are fundamentally about life versus death. I cannot emphasise enough how important this shift is for each of us individually, for our lives collectively as a community, and above all, when it comes to our bearing testimony to Jesus, which is our topic. Get this wrong and Jesus' reputation will go down with it. Now, this is not to say that God doesn't care about goodness. Of course he does. It's just that he knows goodness only comes through the life of his indwelling spirit. And can I suggest that's why we can easily tell the difference between someone who's trying to be good in and of themselves and someone who, because of the spirit, has the goodness of God's life naturally flowing out of them. It's what Jesus talked about in John, to whom we will soon come. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit whom had not yet been given. It's why we can with all confidence say, if a community is not life-giving, no matter how much it talks about goodness or even Jesus, then whatever else is going on, it's not the Spirit of God. And I'd say the same applies to people. In short, we cannot even begin to become truly human without being indwelt by the Creator God's life-giving Spirit. So then I hope you can see now just how vital, central, essential is the Spirit, and hence these sessions. And it's not just a matter of learning about Him, but equally importantly, of our experiencing Him. Well, you know, I realise that already that's an awful lot of material. And some of you might be thinking, enough already, right? And I do get that. Uh, and I know I sometimes come across, as folks kindly say, uh, it's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. But can I encourage you? The reality is that you and I are bombarded every waking minute of every day by our culture's view of the world. 
And we, as a gathered community, get 20 to 25 minutes a week of focused instruction, a bit longer if we include worship, with which to counteract that. That's not great odds. How do you think the Canucks would go at the Stanley Cup if, as a single gathered team, they only had 25 minutes of focus coaching each week? But there's good news. These sessions are recorded, which means you can go back and listen to them, pause, take notes, digest, and I'd really encourage you to do that. Okay, so what does all this mean for the Spirit and bearing witness to Jesus? Well, that brings us to John. Now, I admit this might seem surprising. After all, we Pentecostals tend to go to Acts 2 and with good reason. But at the same time, Jesus himself has a lot to say about the Spirit, whom Jesus calls the Comforter, and as we'll see, about the nature of mission. It runs all the way through John chapters 14 through 16. In fact, there's nothing really like it in any other gospel, and not only that, in the entire New Testament. Hmm. So why not? Well, I think the best explanation of which I know turns on John being the disciple whom Jesus loved. (laughs) And the rest of us? Yeah, not so much. No, 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 that's not what's going on. Uh, In the ancient world, this language implied a unique responsibility, not just to record what Jesus said. Mark, Matthew and Luke do just that. But also, and particularly, to provide special insight into the heart of Jesus' teaching. John's being the disciple whom Jesus loved means that he is the one Jesus himself designated for this task. It's why his gospel is unique and not least in its extraordinary emphasis on the spirit. And not only so, but last meals were generally when preachers or teachers, I should say, would speak about what truly mattered most to them. All of this to say, we can safely assume that what Jesus has to say about the Comforter during this Last Supper was of utmost importance to him, and so surely to us. Now, you might recall that prior to Easter, we had some sessions on the foot washing, again, unique to John's Gospel. And it's the foot washing that sets the scene for what Jesus has to say about the Comforter. Why this sequence? I think Jesus is telling us that the only way we can enter into truly bearing witness to him through the Spirit is by first being willing to submit to his example of washing one another's feet. Whatever else, we are to love one another as he has loved us. And this is to be the hallmark of his followers. By this, he says, will all people know that you are my disciples. So while it's true that each and every follower of Jesus has to make their own decision to follow, that always means being part of a community. I think there's something seriously amiss when folks who claim to follow Jesus only sporadically participate in our communal gatherings. And why? Because it's in community that we get to wash each other's feet, that is, to care for and to attend to each other face-to-face as one gathered people. It's no surprise that one of the first moves against the gospel is to prevent Christians from gathering. So can I just kindly suggest, let's not aid and abet the enemy by doing that ourselves. At the same time, what is one of the most potent ways in the New Testament by which Satan conducts spiritual warfare against the church? It's through divisive and self-serving false teachers 
whose aim is not Jesus, but drawing followers after themselves. Foot-washing discipleship is Jesus' great antidote to both these forms of individualism. And I would argue is perhaps the defining characteristic of a genuinely spirit-filled people. Now, immediately after the foot washing, Jesus talks about his coming departure, which in John initially means his death. And the disciples, of course, are devastated. But Jesus says, don't worry. And here you might be thinking, okay, so now a reference to the comforter. But actually, no. First things first. He begins instead with himself. To know me, Jesus says, is to know the Father. Everything turns on who Jesus is, the I am among us. That's why Jesus can make the extraordinary claim, the only way to knowing God as Father is through me. All roads do not lead to God. And now that Jesus has come, not even the law or Moses. I think it's probably impossible to overstate how offensive and unimaginably arrogant this would be. Were it not for all the evidence, Jesus' mighty deeds, his words of life, his death, resurrection and ascension, and his outpouring of the Spirit, all of those things that demonstrate the truth of his claim. The point here is that Jesus' identity comes before everything else. So whatever the comforter might later do, it will always be centred on Jesus. How can I tell if the Spirit is truly present? He will always be pointing to Jesus, not himself. If Jesus is not being exalted, celebrated, heard, then whatever else is going on, it's probably not the Spirit. Now, forgive me, and this might be a little edgy, but I have to confess to a growing uneasiness about identifying ourselves primarily as Pentecostals. Now, I get the history behind this, and I surely care about the Spirit. I'm just not entirely sure how the Comforter himself would feel about defining, about us defining ourselves by an experience that lacks any explicit reference to Jesus. Be that as it may, I think this centrality of Jesus provides the key to understanding that wonderful statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Often seen as a command, I suspect that it is in fact a promise. If you love me, then guess what? You will find yourself keeping my commandments. That's Ezekiel. It's also Galatians. Remember, as Luke said, don't get so focused on the fruit that we forget the process. It's why in the foot washing, an initially hesitant Peter says, well, in that case, wash all of me. For all of his shortcomings, he clearly loves Jesus. So John's very simple question as we begin to talk about the comforter is, do you love him? And he means love him, not as an afterthought, an occasional flicker of interest, especially when we need something. Now, he wants to ask, do we love him? If we do, the daughter sharing in God's eternal resurrection life is open before us. Well, then we hear the disciples' response, but hang on, Jesus, <laughs> you've just said you're going away. And he says, yes, that's true, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But don't worry, I will not leave you orphaned. I will send you another comforter. The implication is that just as Jesus had comforted them, do not let your hearts be troubled, so too will the comforter. And as Dave said, this is not different from Jesus. It's another of the kind of Jesus, of the same kind as Jesus. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. 
What's particularly striking here is Jesus' choice of this word. Why not simply speak of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, or perhaps the Holy Spirit? After all, this is the standard scriptural terminology. Well, don't forget, this material is by far the clearest, the most extended, and the most detailed teaching about the Spirit in the Scriptures, and it's from Jesus himself. So we can only assume that Jesus' choice of term is central to what he has to say. Now, we don't have time to go into all of this in much detail, but comforter translates a rather more difficult Greek word, paraclete, which itself suggests a range of meanings. First, in addition to comfort, it also carries the sense of to act as a defence attorney. That is, what the comfort will do is, first of all, give us the words to speak when needed. Jesus himself spoke about this. Don't be anxious. The Spirit will give you what to say. That is, as we will see in the end, the comforter has a great interest in rightly communicating about Jesus. And secondly, he defends us against Satan's accusations. You know those moments, right? You're a self-centred prat. How could God love you? You're such a failure. And what's the right response? Sure. And while you're at it, anything else? Do your worst. In fact, let's write it all down. Any more? No? So you're done now? Well, guess what? Jesus died for all that stuff and anything extra you, Satan, might have forgotten. It's all nailed to the cross. So on your bike, we're done. Using a bit of colloquial language there. The one who defends us. Paraclete also connotes to intercede before God. The Spirit also expresses those deep, deep feelings that we simply cannot put into human language. And can I say, if this is the gift that God's given you, don't ever stop praying in tongues. I can't tell you the number of times in my own life praying in tongues has been a way to express those deep, deep things that I just can't get clear in my own head. And finally, it also connotes to exhort and to encourage, to strengthen our hearts. It speaks to the Spirit's role in sustaining, guiding and prompting. In sum, Jesus' choice of this multifaceted word gives some wonderful insight into what the Spirit, the Comforter, is about for us. He's to comfort, as did Jesus, to speak in our defence, to intercede on our behalf and to exhort and encourage. And how's he going to do this? How can he do this? Because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He knows exactly what is going on and he speaks truthfully about all of it all of the time. This is all about coming into the light. That's why in Ephesians, one of the first things Paul calls us to do is not to lie to one another, but to speak the truth in love. It's exactly the kind of language we find in John. Can I suggest there's no surer way to grieve the spirit that is to deeply offend him than to lie? Now, what might this look like? Well, this is where things that have been interesting. Many years ago uh, at the church I used to attend, some of the older folks would talk about an extraordinary move of the spirit that they experienced. And the result was on a Sunday morning in this inner city church, you'd see all these people kneeling on the footpath in their suits and fine Sunday clothing. Obviously, that was back then. What were they doing? What they were experiencing was when they went into the gathering, the preacher would be halfway through his sermon and stop and say, oh, Brother Rick. God saw you on Thursday when you took those pencils from your boss's office. A bit further, Sister Smith, Sister Jones, God saw you gossiping about someone else on Friday morning over tea. You need to stop that. 
That's what this truth can look like. It's about purifying us so that we truly become God's holy people. Now, why does the comforter need to do all this? Well, remember, at the end of our first section, we talked about Christians being about life and death. Well, Jesus' concern for his disciples is not here about death. He can give eternal life to whomever he chooses. No, his concern here is that his disciples are not stumbled by the cross, by that same hatred of the world that he faced and which they and we will also encounter if we follow him. Now, I know this language is uncomfortable for many of us. After all, we Canadians are the nicest people on the planet. Everybody likes us. Perhaps. But we are now defined by being disciples of Jesus, and that can change things. Jesus wants to keep them and us from falling away. That, for him, is the greatest danger. And that's why Jesus promises that this one who comforts, defends, intercedes, exhorts and encourages, who always speaks the truth, will be with us forever. It's why Jesus can leave us peace. It's why we should never let our hearts be troubled. But as amazing as all this is, there's actually more. Jesus earlier explained that he had to go in order to prepare a place for them and, of course, for us. And as he declared, and you'll remember, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, traditionally, the Jerusalem temple was known as the house of God, but that's hardly what Jesus means here. More commonly, folks see this as a reference to heaven, and that's usually because they see, I will come and take you to myself, as alluding to the second coming. But I wonder if I can suggest something else. Jesus' departure is indeed to prepare rooms in his father's house, but those rooms turn out to be us. His death is what prepares us so that the Father and the Son, through the Comforter, can take up residence in us. What makes the temple the temple? The presence of God. And that presence, because of Jesus dealing with our sins, is now in us. We, you and I, are now the very dwelling place of God, the Father and Son, through the Spirit upon the earth. That's where all the New Testament talk about us being the temple, the inner sanctuary of God's dwelling comes from. In other words, as Raymond Brown once famously said, the comforter, the paraclete, is nothing less than the presence of Jesus, the one who's one with the Father, when Jesus himself is absent. And now we can understand why Jesus tells his disciples, look, it really is better for you that I go. When he was with them on earth, he could only be physically in one place at one time. Now, through the Spirit, he can be present with them and with us in every time and everywhere, whether we gather here in Fort Langley or in secret house churches in Beijing or Tehran, whether via Zoom or over a coffee or on my bed at night. As a consequence of our loving one another as Jesus loved us, the Comforter enables us to enter into the same love that is shared between the Father and the Son. Think about that for a moment. I trust you can begin to see the enormity of the privilege of being filled with the Spirit. And do remember, because of Jesus' death, this is our inheritance. It's our birthright. A friend of mine grew up in a tradition with a tremendous emphasis on justice, and he worked in various trouble spots around the world. But then he heard about the Spirit, which was new to him. And I'll never forget how his face shone when he shared his first overwhelming encounter with the Comforter. 
As he lay on his bed, he felt he was immersed in a beautifully warm bath of pure love. It transcended time, space, everything, but strangely, not by escaping those things, but instead by indwelling them. I felt some of that too, as I'm sure have many of you. That profound sense of God's love all over like being bathed inside and out with his love. It's very hard to describe. Well, as Dave will cover next week, the comforter is not just about us. All this has been heading somewhere. Yes, as, as indeed has this sermon. It's not just about us. The comforter, as did Jesus, also has something to say to the world. And since Jesus is no longer physically present, that speaking now falls to us. Now, some of you might be thinking, at last we finally got there. Indeed. But do remember that this is Jesus speaking. What if all that we've covered is what he understands to be the necessary framework and foundation for our bearing faithful witness to him? What if we cannot hope truly to bear witness without first embracing everything that for Jesus precedes this moment? What if the foot washing, the centrality of Jesus as the one who shows most clearly who the Father is, his promise that loving him means we will keep his commandments? What if all of that is essential to preparing the ground for the comforter? And moreover, what if the comforter is comforting us, defending us, interceding for us and exhorting and encouraging us by always speaking the truth and his being the means by which the Father and the Son make their home in us, his new temple? What if all of this is the absolute presupposition to the comforter's bearing witness through us to who Jesus really is and what he has accomplished? What if there are no shortcuts What if it's only on this basis, as Jesus says in John 16, 8, that the comforter will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, these verses are universally held to be some of the most difficult in John. Why didn't he say it in easier ways? What exactly does Jesus mean? Well, can I suggest that easy does not often change us? It's easy because we can just slip this stuff into who we are. It's the difficult material that takes thought, time and effort, and that's what really changes us. And the comforter is about nothing if not change. But essentially, all that comes before is what facilitates effective mission, whereby the comforter will expose the world's mistaken thinking about three things. First of all, about sin. What alienates us from God is not being a bad person. If I'm good, I'm going to heaven. Nor is it about keeping Torah. Now there is only one thing, not believing in Jesus, that's the sin that will lead to death. And it's the sin that needs to be repented. Second, about righteousness, the positive side in this contrast. Now, remember, righteousness is fundamentally relationship. It's fundamentally relational. It describes the quality of that relationship with Yahweh that leads to life. And Abraham believed God and God counted it as righteousness, as becoming God's friend. So about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. There are two parts here. It's not that Jesus came from the Father, but that he is going back to him. 
It is Jesus' departure that is the key. And why is that? Well, first of all, it's Jesus going back to the Father that demonstrates his faithfulness, that he and the Father are indeed one, that to see Jesus is to have seen the Father. It's also because Jesus' death is what prepares us to be rooms in God's house, neither being nice nor keeping Torah nor leading a philosophical, uh, philosophically reflective life will do. Jesus had to die. And the comforter is about convincing the world of that truth. If we want to know God's presence, we have to accept that Jesus had to die for us, essentially that our attempts at goodness are not even in the running. For many of us, that's exceedingly humbling. And the second part, they're seeing him no more, speaks to his and the Father's sending the comforter. It's the comforter's very own presence that speaks to the true nature of friendship with God. It's exactly what happens when folks come into our gatherings or sit with us over coffee and immediately sense that something really is different. It's when they hear something in the worship, the teaching or what we share that makes them feel that God is speaking directly to them, that God wants for them to be his friends. And finally, it's about judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. The world is in a mess. It really needs someone to sort it out. And the real problem is the ruler of this world. He's the one that's all about ego, division, playing on our insecurities, lying, our casual sex, etc., etc. But in Jesus' death and in creating one new humanity, he's gathered around him a community that expresses the foot-washing love of Jesus to one another, a community that's comforted, defended, interceded for, exhorted and encouraged by the spirit of truth, a community through whom the Father and the Son make their home in us. In all of this, Jesus has defeated the evil one. And truth to tell, in the ancient world, it was exactly that example of a new humanity that in the end overcame the empire. So in all of this, since Jesus, since neither Jesus nor his gospel ever changes, it can happen again right here and right now.